Well, we are in Mark chapter 8. I had originally intended to read uh, those other verses because I had originally intended to preach all the way down through the first verse of chapter 9. But as would have it, as I was studying for this sermon, uh, God laid some other thoughts on my heart. And it left me not being able to get to all the various places I wanted to get to. But regardless, we're going to spend a little bit of time here this morning looking at this confession of Peter as Jesus being the Christ and what that means. For a while... um, Jesus has been preaching and ministering and teaching about the coming of God's kingdom. If you remember, all the way back at the beginning of our study, in chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus begins his preaching ministry declaring that very thing. In verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus says, uh, or it says that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. For the very outset, Jesus has made it his sort of prime motive, his only message to preach about this coming kingdom of God, which puts him squarely in line with all of sort of the messianic expectations that people who knew the scriptures would come to know and be familiar with. Of course, they would hear him preaching about the kingdom and they would be wondering what he is talking about. And they would be also curious at the fact that he is saying in their midst that he has come to fulfill these things. He has come to fulfill all of those long uh, promised um, uh, expectations of a coming king. But as we've seen uh, throughout his ministry, he's dropped uh, several hints, some subtle, some not so subtle Uh, indicating that this kingdom, the kingdom that he has based his entire ministry on, would actually be a very unexpected kingdom. It would be one that kind of subverts all of the expectations many had come to believe about who this Messiah was and what he had come to do. And so here in chapter 8, as sort of the hostility that surrounds Jesus, that surrounds Jesus' ministry and his identity as he is taught, as that begins to intensify and escalate, Jesus is now seeking to crystallize his mission, to show his disciples, to have them see exactly what he has come to do. We hinted at that last week as we... uh, preached about this blind man from Bethesda, which is in verses 23 through 26, as he was a stand-in for the disciples themselves, that his blurry vision indicated the same blurry vision with which the disciples saw Jesus. And here, he presses into that a little bit as he seeks to clarify he, being the Messiah, what he has come to do. If you remember... As our text begins, it says Jesus went out. You remember that he is in Bethesda, which is on the north point of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in this first verse that his disciples went into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. He has just finished this healing this blind man. And now they begin to march northwards about 25 miles, so to speak. And it says that, and by the way... Along the way, while they are walking and talking in the outskirts of the city, Jesus sets the stage, poses these questions in order to show them who he was, who he really was. 
So look at it again. It says at the end of verse 27, he asked them that pointed question. Whom do men say that I am? And notice, I think it's interesting that he asks first, what's... He's asking them, what's the word on the street, so to speak? What's the general consensus of people? And they've heard about me. They've heard about you following me. And they've seen me do certain things. What are people saying about me? Who are people saying that I am? What's the general contention of my identity? As you can very well know, he's gained lots of followings. Certain people are crowding Jesus, as we've seen throughout Mark, perhaps for good reasons, perhaps for ill reasons. But regardless, he has a following, so to speak. And he's asking them, who do men say that I am? Who do people think I am? Well, it's interesting, if you look at verse 28... How they answer. They say John the Baptist. Some say Elias or Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. What's fascinating to me about their answer. Is that they're repeating the same exact rumors. That Herod and his advisors had come up with in chapter 6. Remember chapter 6 and verse 14. When it's talking about how Herod had heard of this man Jesus. Because he, Jesus had sent out his apostles on this first sort of little mission excursion. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 6. And King Herod heard of him. Heard of this guy Jesus. Because it says for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. But look at verse 15, because others said, that is Elijah. And others said, that is a prophet or as one of the prophets. And then Herod, as we know, as we looked at, he was firmly in the belief that this was John the Baptist resurrected. Come back to life, come back to haunt him. It's interesting that, that the disciples are aware of that noise. They're aware of that conversation surrounding who Jesus was. They're repeating the same things that society was repeating about Jesus. I think that indicates that there was a significant amount of confusion regarding this teacher from Nazareth, this Jesus of Galilee. People really weren't sure who he was. He was doing obviously some incredible stuff. He had been going around healing people, healing lepers, healing blind men, lame men. He was touching uh, 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 women and healing them as well. He's doing all these sorts of things that really don't fit with what we think the Messiah uh, should do. Again, it goes back to, again, sort of the sort of frustration As they hear Jesus talking about a kingdom, talking about messiahship and him self-fulfilling those roles. And yet he's not really following along with what they thought that the Messiah would do. He wasn't fulfilling sort of their messianic expectations, so to speak. You can just look at Jesus' life. He has no army That he has come with. He has no sword. He pulls out of his sheath with which to attack Rome. He has no sort of plan to upset the political infrastructure of the first century. He hasn't really come to do that. Such is why he is hoping here to clarify who he is and what the true Messiah would do and accomplish. Such is why, if you look in verse 29, he presses the question. Look, he makes it so much more personal. He says to them, But whom say ye that I am? 
And you have to put the emphasis on that personal pronoun there. Who do you say that I am? I don't, I don't very much care what all the other people think. I don't really uh, uh, have a concern for how they regard me, for what they think of me. I want to know, disciples, I want to know what do you believe? In your heart of hearts, who do you think I am? Now, this is a very seminal moment, not just for Jesus and his ministry, but for his disciples. Because if they say that this teacher, who has uh, up to this point <laughs> really kind of subverted a lot of the ceremonial laws that have come to be uh, the, the norm uh, for the religious people in this day, and they say that this Jesus is the Messiah, they're scandalizing many people that they knew and were friends with. Because Jesus, again, he wasn't following messianic expectations. He wasn't coming and following all these Judaic laws and rules and ritualistic systems. Jesus was seen more like an instigator. A rabble rouser. He was just coming, stirring up people. Healing people. Preaching a message which really subverted the religious laws of the day. And here he's pressing into that sort of tension. Saying, really, what do you really believe? I want to know. And Peter, being the vocal man that he is, he speaks up and he says, Thou art the Christ. An incredible confession. Again, as we mentioned last week, this is what Jesus has been building up to the entire time. He's wanted to show them over and over again that this is who I am. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. As we said last week, he didn't want to just tell them that. He wanted to show them that. He wanted to pull this confession out of his followers. Be more of a, a real belief for them if that was the case. He wanted them to see that this is who he is. I'm not just another teacher, not just another prophet. I am the Christ. The one that has been foretold by all the prophets through all of the Old Testament writings. And it's a good thing to remember, as Peter here makes this confession, that when he says that Jesus is the Christ, that Christ is not a name of Jesus, it's a title of Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. It means the anointed one. The, the promised king of Israel is really what all of that word means. Of course, Christ has come to mean so much more because of what Jesus accomplishes. But here, again, we have to remark that this confession, that this teacher from Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee, by confessing that he is the Christ, they're linking this guy, this, this teacher, with all of the ancient prophecies of the anointed one. Well, you can go to like Psalm chapter 2 or 2 Samuel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7. All over the Old Testament, there's all of these prophecies of the anointed one that would come. And here, they're linking all of that, all of those stories with Jesus. And he's saying, yes, <laughs> yes, that's who I am. And again, you have to see and remember, think of the, the scandalousness of that profession, of that confession of his disciples. Jesus hadn't engendered a lot of friendliness. 
He wasn't popular nationally with a lot of the religious authorities or political figures. People wanted his head. He had kind of skirted around all of the Sabbath ordinances and the things that had come to regulate religious ceremony in those days. He had argued constantly up to this point with all of the religious authorities and he refused to engage in any political conversations. He wasn't really doing what many people thought the Messiah would come and do. And such is why he charges no man tell uh, any others of his identity. If you notice that verse 30, it's interesting. He says, he charges them that they should tell no man of him. He's accepting the title. Yes, I am the Christ, but don't tell anyone. It's, It's interesting why he would charge them to remain silent. But I think it comes because of two reasons. One, because just the broadcasting of that news would just incur all sorts of dangerous and hostile implications because of the people who want his head. We know, as we've referenced a couple times, Mark chapter 3, right off the very back, the Pharisees have already started to consort with the Herodians of how to destroy him. Herod now wants his head. There's a lot of antagonism going around and going on regarding Jesus. People gunning for his life. But I think also too, this charge for silence comes because even though they have made this confession, Peter is speaking on behalf of his friends, they were still sort of fuzzy what that meant that he was the Christ. You can see it. Look at the next verse. Because Jesus, he accepts this proclamation. Yes, I am the Christ. And he begins to teach them, it says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He is disclosing exactly what he, as the Christ, has come to do. Me, Jesus, as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, this is my true mission. And it doesn't look like anything like they expected. He doesn't say, here's the secret plot, how we're going to overthrow Rome. Here's all of the schematics of how we're going to accomplish this coup against the Roman government. He doesn't say anything like that. It's actually the very opposite of what they have come to expect. He doesn't whip out a sword and say, here, let's go fight. He actually says, I have to die. He says, I have to be killed. Notice he says, I must suffer. I must suffer these things on these men's hands and be killed. It was an undeniable and inescapable conclusion to Jesus' mission that he would suffer and be killed. And it's pointing here to the very substitutionary uh, death that he would soon fulfill on the cross. It's interesting, at this point he doesn't mention the idea of a cross... We will get to that later on. But even if he had, it would have engendered all the more scandal. Because now he's not just dying at the hands of of a governing body. He would be indicating that he's dying a criminal's death. Perhaps they weren't ready for that revelation. I don't know. But I love the fact, if you notice this verse, notice it again. 
That the Son of Man must suffer these things, this is what he's teaching, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is already uh, preaching, teaching, talking as if the resurrection has already happened. He's talking as if it's a verifiable fact of history when it even hasn't even happened yet in their uh, time. He's already talking about death is going to be defeated. Sin is going to be no more. Why? Because I'm going to be killed and three days later I'm going to rise again. It's something to Jesus that is already true. Something that they, his disciples, we, his church, don't have to question. Because Jesus was already living in the reality of a confirmed resurrection even before it's even happened. But look at what happens because this is what Peter can't understand. Look at what it says. And he spake that saying openly. Jesus is being very verbose, very boisterous with this saying. And it says, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. What an interesting turn. Peter just confessing that Jesus is the Christ is now rebuking Jesus. Why? It's because of what Jesus was telling him that the Messiah would do. He would die. Again, he couldn't understand how these things could go together. He couldn't reconcile sort of the popular Messiah with the Messiah that Jesus is now here saying he is. The popular Messiah was supposed to come and restore Israel back to its zenith of world power. Bring it back to sort of the preeminence of all political and social and religious and all sorts of clout that it used to have. Bring it out of being enslaved to Rome. And Jesus is saying that I'm the one they were getting excited. And here he says, but before that happens, I'm going to die. Peter was perhaps no doubt frustrated, confused by this assertion. How could the anointed one be killed? How could the one, the long promised, victorious king of Israel, the king of the Jews be vanquished? It didn't compute. He couldn't connect the dots, so to speak. He couldn't accept what Jesus was saying. And you have to see. Take off sort of your 21st century thinking caps. Put on your 1st century thinking caps. And think about what Jesus is saying. That he is both God and man. And that he has come to die. Die for men. Such an idea wasn't just unthinkable, it was almost blasphemous. Let me read you this passage from a historian. He says this, that divinity in this time, in the first century, was the very greatest of the great. It was for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. To nail them to the rocks of a mountain or to turn them into spiders or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. And for the Jews, it was not merely blasphemy, it was madness. In the first century, this idea that divinity would die for creatures was unthinkable. It was madness. 
This is the scandal of what Jesus is saying. I have come to be killed at the hands of these men. I've come to lay my life down again so that you might find yours. Here Jesus is reaffirming that his mission was of God. Look at what it happens. Because Jesus is, takes this rebuke of Peter, his disciple. And it says, but when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What a, what a chastisement. Can you imagine being Peter? Feeling all confident and having all the bravado of saying, I have been the one that has confessed that you are the Christ. And then in a few moments, Jesus has now called you Satan. <laughs> and essentially, that's exactly what he's doing. He's not just rebuking Peter. He's rebuking Peter for sort of standing in for Satan. He's rebuking Peter for to see, have him see the seriousness with which he was trying to rebuke his Christ. Get thee behind me, Satan. See, in this moment, Peter was minding the things of men over and above the things of God. Peter's rebuke of Christ, if you go to some of the parallel passages, we're given the words that he says, which is, may these things never be to your account. May you never have to die, essentially, is what Peter was rebuking Christ for. We will fight for you. We will stand up and fight this war for you. In a sense, it was a temptation of Christ to what? Forego death. To forego the cross. To forget the father's will. And still get a kingdom and a crown. Because Peter would fight. The disciples would lift up their swords. It's the same temptation. With which Jesus was tempted. By Satan in the wilderness. Just bow before me. And you will get all of these earthly kingdoms. Jesus says. Get thee behind me Satan. Why? Because he knows his mission. His mission is not what Peter thinks. See, Peter here is sort of standing in. He's sort of the mouthpiece, so to speak. He's the voice for all of his disciples' unbelief and misunderstanding. They were thinking too earthly. Thinking too lowly in their thoughts of this coming kingdom. You see, where many have thought Jesus should take up a sword and assault the strongholds of men, here Jesus is affirming once again that his messianic conquest deals with an enemy that's far nastier than any man's castle. Far more dangerous. Far more damning. Jesus is saying, I have come not to lead a conquest against men, but to lead a conquest against sin. It reminds me of the passage we've already preached through. Mark chapter 3, verse 27, where he affirms that no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Jesus is the stronger man. 
Who has come in and said, I will bind the strong man Satan and spoil his domain and reclaim what is mine. I have come to be the Messiah, the Messiah who has come, the promised one of the prophets, who has come to liberate all of you from your enslavement to sin. I have come to be the stronger man. The stronger man who, in a way, subverts all of their notions of strength. Because he says, I have come to plunder this house, and he does so by dying. See, again, all of these assertions of Jesus are coming full circle. They're coming around, and he's leading up to this point where he's saying, I am an altogether different Messiah, an altogether different anointed one. I am an unexpected king, an unexpected savior who has come to die. I will gather no armies. I will gather no sort of bands of, of, of men to overthrow tyrannical magistrates. I have come to gather no sort of political or social clout. I have just come to be your death and resurrection. I have come to be your death. Such is why he says, I must suffer these things and be killed. I have come... To die. It points to this lovely thing that we have in the gospel. We could call it sort of the upside down expression of power. Where Jesus is asserting that his kingdom will only be established by its king dying. That in order to have victory he has to be defeated first. And that in order to be crowned he has to go by way of the cross. It doesn't make sense to some people. Such is why Paul in the first letter to the Corinthian church calls it the foolishness of the cross. To some it sounds like foolishness. But to us it sounds like grace. And that's what it is. It's grace all the way through. Grace all the way down. This is what his kingdom is established and, and established by. Not by the methods and policies and programs of men. Not by men's violence, but by the king's grace. Grace in defeat. There's a passage, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but it just popped into my head. Um, remember later on in the Garden of Gethsemane? And Jesus is, is there and he's come to be arrested. The mob comes led by Judas Iscariot. And there's that crowd of men who have come to arrest Jesus. Which is an interesting and funny notion. And in one of the gospels, I think it's Matthew. It says that Jesus spoke and all the men fell down. And then later on, Jesus is okay with being handcuffed. It's a fascinating scene. But what I love about that scene is that, remember, Peter is the one who draws his sword. He attacks the coming mob that has come to arrest Jesus. And he draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of those mob members. History says his name was Malchus. And I love that scene because remember what Jesus does? He rebukes not the mob for coming and arresting him. He rebukes his disciples. And essentially says, do you not remember that this is not how the kingdom comes? (laughs) 
He tells Peter to put away his sword. The kingdom will not come through your violence. It will come through my victory. And my victory looks like defeat. But have faith because in three days I'm going to rise again. And all victory is going to be proclaimed because death and sin will be no more. My kingdom isn't established by your vitriol, by your endurance, by your efforts. It's established by me being killed. Something the disciples struggled with. I think it's something that we struggle with too. But Jesus is here asserting that there's no such thing as Christianity without the cross. You know why? Because we as humans don't just need to be tweaked. We don't just need a little bit of altering. We don't just need a few sort of magic pills to make us better. We don't need uh, some sort of self-help message that tells us uh, a few steps to live a little bit better, a little bit more cleanly, a little bit more purely. We need to be remade. You might even say, we need to be resurrected. So Jesus has come to be our resurrection for us. He has come to be our death for us. So that belief in his death, belief in his passion, belief in his blood is that remaking of our souls. He has come to give us new life. He has come to accomplish this for everyone who believes. Regardless of where you've come from, he is your anointed king. This is what Jesus has come to say. That he's more than just a national Messiah. He's a universal Messiah who says, I am the world's king. And someday, everyone on earth is going to bow before me and see me as I truly am, as the anointed one of God. There's coming a day, notwithstanding whether you believe in him for salvation or not, when you will bow before him. Let me read you those words. It comes from Paul's letter to the Philippian church. He says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen one day. Everyone is going to bow. And unfortunately for some, this bowing will be too late. This confession of Jesus as Lord will be after their fate has already been sealed because of their persistent unbelief. This is what Jesus has already talked about as the sin which has no forgiveness. There's coming a day at the end of days when finally people will have their eyes opened. And unfortunately it will be too late. The bell will have already sounded on their eternity. 
For some here, it will be the consummation of their faith. They will be brought into the presence of the anointed one. And they will say, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. But this morning, my heart is for you, perhaps, who do not know Jesus. Jesus is your king. He is your Lord and your Savior. And he has come, as it says, in the fashion of a man to invade our domain and show himself as our true and better king. As the true and better Lord and sovereign over your life. He has come so that he could be your death and resurrection. So that you too would bow and consummate your faith with that confession that he is the Christ. The king the Savior. This morning, do you know him? Do you know him not just as Jesus the man? Do you know him as Jesus the Christ? Do you know him as both King and Savior? Do you know him as God and Father? I pray this morning that you would come to know him. Know him as he truly is. Let us pray.